Welcome to this live edition of the of What's Left in Albany. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region, featuring discussions with leaders of communities or organizations to discuss themselves, local or transnational issues, and their projects in an effort to get a full picture of what's going on. My name's Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, promoting the build-out of a solidarity economy and delegative democracy waging a one-man clandestine insurgency against confusion in our post-liberal status quo, as we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for this city, we are going to find whatever's left. And back in the studio with guests, I have with me a friend of the show, Cynthia uh, Pooler, who is on because she has had me on her show so many times. It's only fair to read. Hi, Dan. There we go. And... Scott Ritter, peace slash anti-war activist, writer. He's got a lot of different titles. Let's see, former UN weapons inspector, critic of the Iraq War. That always puts you higher in my book in the aughts. How are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing great, thanks. Okay. So I don't really have any straightforward questions beyond uh, or general outline, except um, you're here to promote. Well, actually, why don't we start from the beginning? Give us uh, your background. Uh, and what you've been doing the last two years, let's say. Well, for the last two years, I've been working on, uh, it's it's a continued progress, a process of uh, trying to educate the American people about the need for meaningful arms control, nuclear disarmament. Um, mm-hmm. And I do it in the context of Russia. And the reason why I bring up Russia is that uh, I think people, America by and large is infected with the disease of Russophobia. Um, when you mention Russia to most people, they get a little nervous. They get a little scared. They uh, they think of Vladimir Putin. They think of uh, the Russian hordes. Uh, lately, they think of the Russian invasion, the brutal invasion of Ukraine, and, uh, mm. and things of this nature. And uh, when you mention nuclear war, they say, yes, Putin's threatening us. He's threatening us with nuclear conflict. And uh, the fact of the matter is that literally none of that is true. Uh, there's only one major superpower that has a nuclear doctrine that's based upon preemption. That is, you can use nuclear weapons first mm-hmm. for no reason. Uh, to show you the ridiculousness, and that, of course, is the United States, to show you the ridiculousness of this uh, this posture in the previous administration of Donald Trump, uh, one of the uh, senior Defense Department officials responsible for um, nuclear posture uh, said, the goal of our administration because of this policy of preemption, is that every morning Chinese and Russian officials wake up. We want them to be uncertain whether or not this is the day we're going to nuke them. Certainly there's a lot of ambiguity. So uh, when, Ambiguity? When, I, don't, I don't understand. What do you mean ambiguity? There's no ambiguity here at all. 
It's no, no, I, no. As far as what a U.S. foreign policy really is. No, it's straightforward. Or, it's uh, hegemony. I'm it's, sorry. It's promoting hegemony. Yes, yeah. I, I don't mean in material terms. I just mean in the minds of our rivals. Of, of the, the, our, no, our rivals know damn sure what we're doing. Uh, they're 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 pretty clear of what we're about. So uh, when, so when Rus- Russian officials speak in in such uh, uh, aggressive terms about using their nuclear stockpile in the last year or so, that's bluster. Rabel South. No, first of all, they don't. They, 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 or would you say they don't do it at all? They're speaking the God's truth, and the God's truth is, Russia's nuclear doctrine is one of deterrence. Mm. If you use nuclear weapons against Russia, you will die. End of story. They also have... Holding built- fast to the mad doctrine. Say again? I said we're all holding fast to the mad doctrine, but yes, the case is... Well, the mad doctrine kept the world safe since yeah. it was instituted in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. But a key aspect of the mad doctrine, mutually assured destruction, was the notion that you would in fact be destroyed. Mm-hmm. But you see, the United States has walked away from the foundational elements of this. One of the key aspects of the mutually assured destruction uh, doctrine is that uh, you won't build missile defense systems mm-hmm. because if you can't defend yourself, you will die. <laughs> and that was that both sides agreed to this. That's why we signed an anti-ballistic missile treaty in 1972. Mm-hmm. It was the Bush administration, George W. Bush, that walked That's away the SALT that. treaty, correct? No, no, ABM treaty. ABM treaty, okay. Yeah, SALT is strategic arms limitation. Right. That, the, that, that stopped the production of more. No, it limited the growth. Limited the growth. Limited the point. growth. Uh, so what it did is it said instead of slow having, down the race, as it were. Yeah, that, that, and, and so that, but that was important because early on we had out of control yes. uh, things. But the ABM treaty was signed at the same time that the mm-hmm. Salt Treaty uh, protocols were put in place. So mm-hmm. the agreement was we're all going to die. So let's slow down the rate of production until which time we can come up with a mechanism to start reducing. Uh, these, these arms. And the first treaty to reduce the arms was the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, signed in 1987, implemented in 1988. You're speaking to the first INF inspector, first on-site inspector in the history of the world mm-hmm. who did this. I was the first inspector on the ground in the Soviet Union in June of 1988 to implement the treaty. And what f- organization were you working as a behest of? I was a United States Marine Corps intelligence officer working for the on-site inspection agency, which was a department of the Department of Defense tasked with implementing this treaty. Gotcha. Yeah. So I was a military officer doing my duty to my country. Mm-hmm. That duty at that time was to get rid of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And we did it. We succeeded. And one of the reasons why we succeeded is because of the foundational elements of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which created mutually assured destruction, which had people saying, hey, if we both agree we're all going to die, why don't we start getting rid of these weapons? Mm-hmm. And we did. We began the process of disarmament, nuclear disarmament. It works, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, you know, it was cut in half in the uh, during the Obama terms, correct? Am I misremembering that? What was the number of gro- uh, gross amount of nuclear missiles in each uh, nation stockpile? Was no, that, that an agreement it, that was made to reduce them by half, um, or was that uh, wasn't effective? Was it no, effective? The, the the Obama administration inherited. A disarmament process was already well into the works. So mm-hmm. after the INF treaty, we sure. signed. I'm just saying with the, the term. That's why I don't say, I don't frame it like it was Obama's treaty. I'm saying it was. Um, well, the New Start treaty was the Obama treaty. We can we can okay. get to that in a second. Right, the key thing to the New Start treaty was that the original Start treaty had expired. Uh, expired. Uh, the the Bush administration that pulled us out of the ABM treaty, um, thereby 
creating uh, uncertainty on the part of the Russians. You were saying, well, wait a minute, if there's no longer mutually assured destruction because you're, you're, you're building missile defenses now, um, what are we doing about new nuclear weapons? And Obama said, we got you covered, boss. We'll negotiate with the Russians. Well, wait a minute, we got to get back to the missile defense. And Obama went, we, we, we hear you. Sure. We can't negotiate simultaneously missile defense and a new arms reduction treaty. What we need to do is you have to trust us. We'll negotiate the new arms reduction treaty, but we promise to get back to you on the missile defense. And Russia went, okay, we'll go along with that. They negotiated the treaty. 2010 was implemented. Mm -hmm. The Russians immediately came in and said, hey, um, that missile defense thing. Can we start up again? And Obama went, "Uh uh-uh, ain't going to happen. We lied. This is what we do. We lie. And so the Russians are sitting there saying, wait a minute, you suckered us into this treaty, this new arms reduction treaty, but now you're going to continue to build missile defense. We're not happy with this at all. So this is why when we get into a situation where the United States and NATO works to strip Ukraine away from the Russian sphere of orbit, to expand NATO up to the borders of Russia uh, in a very aggressive fashion, Russia says, we're not playing that game. If you do this, you create the conditions of, cre- of, 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 of an existential threat against Russia where we will have no choice but to use nuclear weapons. That is our doctrine. But Russia's not threatening people. They're saying, if you attack us, we will respond with potentially nuclear weapons because you're talking about stripping away Russian territories from Russia. And this is the situation that exists to this to this day. It's not Russia blustering. I'll tell you right now, Russia doesn't bluff. And this is one thing that needs to get to the brain of everybody listening to this program. If you think that it's guaranteed that you're going to wake up tomorrow alive, you have no clue what you're talking about. Because at any moment, at any moment, Russia can perceive. So let me cut you off. Yeah. Because um, I do not want to extol myself because I think it's rather moot. Like, for example... Um, there are various controversies most people are kind of ignorant on to even start talking about Ukraine. Because uh, I, today I reviewed at least the internal Green Party debate on what our position is, nationally speaking. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a mess because you have a whole group of kind of mismanaged motives, so to speak. But let's just start with two controversies. Sure. Um, the 2014 Maidan uh, events. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that was, and by the way, these are moot to me, but I'm just lo- looking for context. Do you believe that uh, goes in the category of U.S. coup, popular resolution, uh, revolution, or a bit of both? U.S. coup, 100%. Okay. The CIA had been funding the, uh, the right-wing nationalist parties, the Banderas, since mm-hmm. 1945. In fact, right. we encouraged an act Which took revolt. advantage of the events. Um, Which took advantage of what events? The, pop- the popular protests. Were they not popular protests, or was it completely? There were peaceful. No, there were peaceful protests that began in uh, late uh, uh, 2013, but yeah. it turned violent, and it was made violent by CIA-backed mm-hmm. banderists who sure. sought to violently overthrow the constitutionally elected government of Viktor Yanukovych. So it was. Um, Crimea and Donbass are these um, popular separatist movements, or are they um, Russian military ops, uh, and, um, or a little both? In April of 2014, the Ukrainian government, the new Nazi government of Ukraine. The, sure. Um, right-wing government, let's at least 
No, no. When we say Banderas, we're saying Nazis. Sure. Okay, so it's not right wing. It's Banderas. They are fascists. I'm not, I'm not denying that. Okay, so I'm, I'm just being clear yeah, with sure. people. Right. I don't play word games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. Uh, they I'm passed not a law. That would, they basically passed laws that banned the Russian language, that banned mm-hmm. Russian culture, mm-hmm. that basically said Russians yeah, can't be Yeah, they're nationalists. Russians. Right. And when the Russian people mm-hmm. of the Donbass said, we're, we don't like this, they called them terrorists. They passed what they call an anti-terrorist operation. And they sent the Ukrainian army against right. them. And they've been fighting an insurgency war between. Well, I, 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 again, I, I. They've been fighting insurgency in Donbass, at least, right? I would say that the That's ethnic Russians, the ethnic the Russians, decade. stood up and mm-hmm. defended themselves, mm-hmm. much like, say, maybe people at uh, Concord and Lexington stood up and defended themselves against the British. Okay. Um. Okay. I'm not moving beyond that. Um. Are we? Let, let, okay, so let's go back to your background. And, and uh, so um, you laid out the, the general tone of, yes, nuclear weapons, uh, bad. Uh, nuclear weapon, um, let's see, uh, deterrence is good. Um, and uh, why don't you go forward with uh, the program you're going forward with? Well, first of all, I don't agree that deterrence in and of itself is good because deterrence requires the existence. Sorry, sorry, of sorry. disarmaments, disarmament. Bingo. Still, There's right. where so, that's right. my thing is getting. Rid I gave blood of today. I'm a little slow, but I apologize. And if you for, could, uh, I didn't recognize. You can meet my speed here. So, because um, <laughs> I'm because I'm not. So usually this show is about local politics, right? So this is definitely like I'm not as a if I'm not pretending to be a journalist, but let's just say I want to be prepared. Um, I'm not going to be able to meet your level of um, practice in this area of expertise. No, no, you're asking great questions. Conversation. So, yeah, right, yeah. Because um, I'm pretty well, I, I've been following this probably better than others, and I myself um, can be called a poop and puppet here and there, as uh, Howie Hawkins is called an imperialist just because <laughs> he wants to arm Ukraine for as long as the war is going on. That's his position. The only like, it's like if we arm Ukraine because of, well, how about, how about I reframe it? Because you kind of, did the um, the thing where you refer you know, Ukraine should be in the sphere of influence of Russia um, as as far as geopolitical like do, do geopolitical concerns trump the right of a nation state regardless of what kind of government it has to self determination not to, yeah self determination and right to defend itself because that goes for any nation state because you know I can say the American nation state terrible rotten built on slavery, um, run by fascists. Um, I can repeat the question um, if you need. No, no, there's there's no need, but I, I don't think that you can take things, you, you have to put everything into a context. First of all, the concept that Ukraine woke up one morning and said, hey, I want to be part of NATO. That's not how it worked. NATO made an agreement with the former Soviet Union yes. back in 1990. Haven't they been rebuffed by NATO officials in the last... Even, you know, during the century? Uh, Ukraine? They yes, were, they were, that's what I've read. They were, they were invited in uh, November of 2008. This is what started this way. whole thing. An invitation was extended to begin the process of bringing Ukraine into NATO. Okay, yes, okay. I'm and Russia, wrong. before that, an important thing is that uh, William Burns, currently the director of the CIA, at that time he was in early 2008, he was the U.S. ambassador to Russia, he wrote a memorandum. Yeah. And by the way, for yeah. context of listeners uh, who are not versed in all of this, because there's a lot of background, not only ideology, but just knowledge of like, okay, so the, the leftist position is NATO as a military alliance, 
it's a, it's the it's a tool and extension of U.S. military power. Um, it can be called an extortion racket. You know, if you're not in NATO, you're probably going to get bombed by NATO. Um, and uh, and it's an extension of our hegemony, which Scott referred to. Um, it's an it's imperialism, and you know my position as other kind of types of leftists like me do not see a good imperialism out there to counter our bad imperialism. Imperialism is is bad, and uh, it's not nation state versus nation state or Russia China versus U.S. But um, but our working class, our progressive elements. And their Ukrainian and Russian progressive elements. Um, it's okay. Keep going. Sorry, I interrupt. Well, I think we're in agreement that uh, NATO, as it currently exists, is um, is is an institution that is per, it, uh, merely exists to promote. Uh, it's an extension of U.S. national security and um, mm-hmm. a policy. It uh, it's not a defensive alliance. It stopped being a defensive alliance when it began bombing Serbia in 1999, when it carried out a regime change operation in mm-hmm. Libya in 2011, when it participated in the uh, occupation and nation building of Afghanistan from 2002 yeah. onward. So that was a NATO part uh, event. Yeah, it was only Iraq that we went it alone. So to speak. Well, not really in Iraq. But, uh, we, we, we but had, we had Britain on board, too. Well, we had yes. a Poland and uh, Poland. Pol- uh, Ukraine. Oh. Ukraine sent troops to Iraq. OK, uh, I didn't know. That. Oh, yeah. No. And How many? Then, uh, a couple thousand. Sure. And in uh, two, Italians were in two thousand uh, regiments worth, uh, brigades worth. In uh, gotcha. in two thousand three, um, NATO under pressure from the United States began a training mission in Iraq. So it legitimized the invasion and occupation of Iraq. So NATO is not a good organization. It's a bad organization. It's an organization that has again since nineteen ninety been operating on a lie where they said not one inch eastward we will expand. Yes. And they've been bringing in people in. In two thousand eight, William Burns wrote a memorandum that said if NATO invites Ukraine to join it. It will set off a series of events that will culminate inevitably in a Russian military in some intervention. Kind of, yes. And when you... That's something you that, can calculate from right. and so decades of experience. Right. And so he wrote that in early 2008. And in late 2008, we invite Ukraine to join NATO, knowing the causality of it. So this is a conflict that's been in the makings sure. since 2008. And Russia, since that time, has been saying... We will never accept Ukraine becoming a member of NATO because there's ill intent behind this. That's the problem. Um, but let's move past the, the conflict. Where, where, where we're at today is that in America, we can't have a civil conversation about the complexities of these issues because Russia is bad. Putin is bad. And a lack of political education, so to speak. Well, sure, but I mean that's why you do reach we, the conclusion. Do we share a uh, agenda of replacing NATO with a shared security na- uh, framework that includes pretty much all the other powers, uh, like think, a UN-based security system? Well, until they fix the Security Council, I'd be hesitant to give any uh, global yeah, security uh, sure. factor to the. So I guess it would need, Yeah, I mean, even even how he. I think says, Europe puts it as a something that's. Not I think the I think Europe has to solve European problems, get America out of it, and let Europe decide what they want to do. And I think if they did that, they would come up with a European security framework with Russia that would be respected. Random question. Do you include Turkey in Europe? Turkey is a European power right now. The, right. You know, there is part of it straddles. It straddles Europe and Asia until you remove uh, Turkish Thrace from the problem. You have to call it a European country. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Physically it is. Sure. Um, but it might, you know, I wrote a book back in uh, 2021 
that, that talked about my experience as a weapons inspector in the former Soviet Union, disarm in the time of perestroika. And um, the book was originally, to be honest, it was written for posterity uh, to, mm -hmm. because I had done something that was really, really cool. Nobody knew about it. And I'd sort of like my friends and my family to, to be tell aware. your story. And have yeah, I wrote it. But when it was published, mm -hmm. it suddenly took on a whole new meaning because it was written about a time, the 1980s, where the United States and the Soviet Union were almost on the verge of nuclear war. I mean, we were very close. Why? Speaking as a millennial yeah. who was born in 88, why was it so much? So why was there so much more tension in the 80s? Um, than in, say, the 70s or even the 60s. Oh, I mean, I, I keep hearing that things were really close then, and, and there were the close calls that occurred. Why? Why was it just the uh, kerfuffle in Afghanistan? Was it, uh, was it, what, what's your version of that? Well, well was it all, all just the bluster of, uh, of TV president? No, no, I mean, it, this was real. Look, we, you had, as much as he's reviled, and I know many people don't like when I'm going to use a name, and I'm sure many in your audience are going to hiss the second I say it. But Henry Kissinger um, was a man who um, helped shape a, um, a the global system, right? Well, detente also. I mean, okay. the, the idea that the United States and the Soviet Union could peacefully coexist, the, United, the, the idea that the United States and China could peacefully coexist. Mm -hmm. um, he shaped this uh, concept, but then... The Ford administration didn't have a second term. He was voted out by Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter comes in, and suddenly politics come into play. If you remember, when Carter ran for election, uh, a man named Ronald Reagan was going for the Republican nomination. He got beat out, but he became the darling of the conservative movement. Sure. And so Jimmy Carter became a foil around which the conservatives started beating him over the head. So Jimmy Carter had to react in a manner. For instance, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, instead of moving forward, with SALT II, which is a very important treaty uh, that, that was going to get rid of, you know. Right, we didn't get the SALT II. And the, oh, that's right. Okay. It's been a while since I've reviewed this uh, historical material, even as a history nerd. Because um, so, it's the, the year by year and the play by play. Right. So we have that going on. Then you have in 1979 also the beginning of the Solidarity Movement in Poland. So there's tension in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan runs on a platform of. You might have heard this before. Yes. Make America great again. Uh -huh. uh, you know? Yes, make it. Uh, and, and well, so, it's always perennial. That's, I so, mean, that's reactionary it's, politics. Everybody does you. it. Right. But he comes in, and he's very hardcore anti-Soviet Union, calls him the evil empire. Yeah, yeah. Then we have things happen, such as the shooting down of, uh, of, of a KLL 007. One of our spy planes. No, no, the, the 747. Else. Oh, okay. Uh, that had an American congressman on board, uh, Duncan. That got killed. Um, oh, okay. A big deal. Uh, huge Security Council issues. So we have this tension, and then to, what was the context for that? Uh, an American spy plane was was shadowing it, uh, and the uh -huh. Russians initially mistook it for a, a spy plane and shot it down. I see. Um, some people believe they knew they were shooting down a seven forty seven when it happened. Uh -huh. That's that's uh, that's different. But they they shot down a civilian airliner over Russian ter Soviet territory, killed a lot of people. Um, but the, the the point is. In, in the midst of all this tension. Well, we got to have intelligence. we got to do our espionage to counter yeah. anyone else's. I'm, I'm, I'm a former intelligence officer who believes that our, our officials yeah, should be well-informed, but uh -huh. I don't believe in doing stupid things like shadowing a civilian airliner and getting them all shot right. down. Very well. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> There's ways to do intelligence. Uh, look, it's a dirty business, but it, it is what it is.
ideally we could live in a world where we wouldn't need to spy on people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you on that. But um, we, we have a situation now where in the midst of all this tension, the Russians upgrade their intermediate nuclear forces. The SS-20 missile, which is a road mobile missile mm-hmm. with three nuclear warheads, gets built and deployed, and it changes the balance of power in Europe. Uh, yes. uh, suddenly Europe's Those going. Those big trucks with the missiles on Yes, okay. yes, yes. And, uh, They're always shown in B-roll, and I'm like, bingo. There what are those? Are. Those are the I'm SS-20s. i those are. Okay. Those are the SS-20s, and they are going to take out Europe, and suddenly there's a balance of power issue. NATO's panicking. Mm-hmm. So the United States says, well, then we'll deploy our own INF systems, the Pershing-2 missile, the, the ground-launched cruise missile. We're going to be deployed. If you recall, the this is back when there was the no-nuke movement in Europe, big movement. Yes. Uh, it took down a German government. A lot of people don't remember that, that a German government actually collapsed because of the no-nuke movement. It put a million people into the into Central Park in uh, June of 1982 in a demonstration against yeah. nuclear war yeah. that as a lot far, of people as, have as forgotten far, about. As far as uh, move, 80s movements that have political import, I guess there was, there was anti-apartheid in South Africa and no-nukes. And no-nukes was a big deal because right after that, that, that demonstration in 1983, ABC News, um, or ABC News, ABC at Network public, did a, a miniseries called The Day After. It was about the day after a general nuclear exchange. Okay. Scared the living dog poop out of everybody, including Ronald Reagan, who looked at it and, and turned to his advisors and said, is this true? And they went, no, boss, it's going to be much, much worse. worse than that. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying that our American leadership had never considered the actual ramifications of nuclear war? Almost every American president, when they first become a president, They're, is taken into the Pentagon and right. briefed on what's called the PSYOP, which is the, the, uh-huh. the integrated, the, the nuclear war plan. Okay. And they all walk away. Not that PSYOP. Okay. They all walk away sick to their stomach because they say, you're telling yeah. me we have no options. Mm-hmm. I'd like options. And the nuclear war planners went, no, boss, we're going to kill everybody. Yeah. And they go, this is insanity. Now, Reagan had been briefed on it, but suddenly it comes home to him that this is real. That this could happen. So, so th- this, uh, this uh, uh, was an expo- expose documentary that ABC produced. No, no, it was a drama. It was a drama. A, it was, a drama. This, was this uh, the year of War Games or before War Games? Because as a I think millennial, War games, I think War Games came. After I've seen that. War Games. Yeah. I haven't seen anything else from that. I mean, I, I just know that since the '60s, since the dropping of the bombs, that there has been media about how bad nuclear war. Could be, but it's usually progressive reds or other types. Well, back then, that. but back then it was real. Oh. I mean, I, I'm of the generation that actually learned how to crawl under your desk. Sure, sure. When I lived in Germany, my dad was a member of the U.S. Air Force. We were stationed in Germany. We lived next door to a nuclear weapons storage facility that would be the first target hit. And, um, you know, this is why I take this personally. My parents had a code word um, that, that they did because my dad, every once in a while, go down to the bunker mm-hmm. when it looked like there was going to be a nuclear war. Oh, yeah, you had a code and, word. And right. he would call my mom and say, Alas, Babylon. And that was from a book of a, about of yeah, the apocalypse. Yeah, sounds, sounds like a, and, like a um, book. And what it meant is gather your children together, tell them you love them because it's it, there's a chance it's going to be over really soon. This was real. This is the world I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was in a nuclear-capable field artillery unit where we practiced several times a year on firing nuclear weapons to make sure that we knew how to do it and that we would do it. Um, this is why when Ronald Reagan signed the INF Treaty to get rid of these weapons, the SS-20s that we were talking about, mm-hmm. the Pershing Twos, the Glickums. Um, and the U.S. versions. Right, that's the Pershing II and the, okay. and the Glickums. Um, you know, it, I have to be honest, initially I wasn't too thrilled about this. 
because I was a cold warrior. I mean, I grew up better dead than red, kill economy for mommy. And you just, uh, you, it sound like, it's like some cost. You've done all this training. I mean, what's it for? Well, I've been trained to kill Russians from day one. Mm -hmm. And now they're telling me I have to hug them to death. So there's a little bit of uh, resentment. But as soon as I got involved in well, this. Well, you only destroy your enemies by making them friends. Well, this is what we, I had to learn that because I believe destroying my enemy by closing, yes. uh, closing in on them and killing them with firepower manure. Mm -hmm. But now I have to go in and work with them. So this book is this remarkable story of going into the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. into a place that nobody had ever been before outside of a missile factory, building an arms control system, $12 million system, and learning to work with the Soviets to get rid of these weapons. Mm -hmm. And when I went in there, they were my enemy. When I left two years later, they were my friends. And this this, this transformation, I, I discussed it in my book. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, I'm sitting here. In, it, did, did the U.S. Uh, do any such, uh, did, did Soviet um, oh, it was intelligence officer, it was a mutual? When, when you have a, a treaty of this nature, it's mutually reciprocal. Okay. So just checking. We, we had Soviet inspectors coming over to the United States doing the exact same thing that we were doing, getting rid of the American weapons, monitoring American missile production. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, so I, I wrote this book, and suddenly I'm taking a look at the situation. I'm going, man. We're in the same situation today, and people are telling me, Scott, there's no hope. I mean, it's so bad today. And I'm like, no, guys, it, it used to be pretty bad in the 80s. And you know we solved the problem by through disarmament. Sure. I, this book is not just a history now. This book is a template of hope. Not to mention that it's possible, and it isn't just like, oh, we're all going to act in bad faith anyway. There's no point in even trying to be in good faith. Good faith. Right. This proves uh, that it can They're be never going to act in good faith. Why should we? But, of course— there's then the denial that we never act in good faith, or that we always act in good faith, when in fact, as you kind of outlined, and I do agree with the facts, that uh, the U.S. in foreign policy does not act in good faith, and that's why our allies are few and fewer, and if they are, it's usually out of some type of fear, and like, well, who else can we go to to balance things around us, um, except U.S. military power, let's say the Philippines, um, <laughs> against, the, against their opposite, uh, local opposition. Um, so let's get to um, one of the reasons you're actually here. Um, you're starting fundraising uh, efforts for a documentary that you want to do uh, called Waging Peace, which reminds me of Waging Nonviolence, which is a group that does basically the Gandhian-style uh, civil disobedience type of organizing. Um, why don't you start telling us about that? Well, I was just about to. Um, my book, Disarmament the Time of Perestroika, isn't just about the American side. It's about going to Russia, working with Russians, meeting Russians. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, in addition to publishing here in America, why not try and publish it in Russia? And I got a Russian publisher, Komsomolskaya Pravda. They published the book. And then uh, at the end of April, I went to Russia for a 26-day book tour. And I went to 12 cities, meeting with Russians, talking with Russians, trying to educate, trying to educate um, my... Uh, you know, educate myself about the reality of Russia because you can't talk about promoting disarmament until you break through this Russophobia that exists. And the best way to break through the Russophobia is to capture the reality of Russia and bring it into focus. And while I was doing this, uh, this tour, it was such a remarkable experience. I mean, it was really, I've, I've been around a while and I've done a lot of really cool things in my Walk life. Back. Uh, what year was it? Was this recent or? This was this year. Tour. Okay. Because you wrote in one. Uh, 2021. Oh, okay. In the United I, States. I, I it was published you. in Russia 
in April of 2022. Oh, okay. That's and at the I, end I of April 2022, I went to, or 23, I'm sorry. Uh, it was published in 2022 here in the United States, mm -hmm. 2023 in Russia. Gotcha. I went to Russia and did this this tour. I just came back from it. Right, your book um, tour. And so the idea was to capture this book tour, uh, capture the the lessons that I was learning, capture the experience, the reality, and turn it into a documentary film that could be shown to Americans uh, in, a, in an effort to educate them about not only the dangers of, 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 of this out-of-control arms race, mm -hmm. not only about the importance of uh, disarmament. Now the doomsday clock is everything. only seconds from midnight. 90 seconds from midnight, yeah. uh, okay. But also about the fact that the Russians don't want war. The Russians are just like us. Mm. The Russians want peace. And so, you know, I'm an expert in waging war. I've done it. Um, mm -hmm. But this is about waging peace. This is about taking the fight against Russophobia mm -hmm. to the American audience. And so we're, we're making a movie, Waging Peace. The idea is to show it to American audiences in an effort to break down the, the, the ignorance about Russia, to educate them about disarmament, to educate them about the importance of uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons in time so that they can take this empowerment and use it to influence the election in 2024. What kind of policy demand, um, well, let's put it at, let's let maybe we brainstorm it ourselves. Um, is that, does that to take the form of multi-party talks between, let's say we include also Ukraine and Poland and other um, Eastern European nations who want a joint security uh, forum, let's say, to, because a treaty is not between U.S. and Russia. They're not the combatants, right? Um, it's Ukraine and Russia. So does it start with a ceasefire with them? Does it include a demand to pull out that, that Russian troops must pull out of Ukrainian-occupied areas? Let's say it does include Donbass or Crimea, but... Um, what is uh what does it look like in, as far as like what 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 do we want out of a successful um, peace negotiation? This isn't about a peace negotiation at all. Um, that's a different topic altogether. First of all, there will be no peace negotiation. Do you think that, we can have disarmament without? We can we can't the have disarmament. Stopping? We can't no. The shooting has to stop. Yeah. Russia's going to win this war. That's the reality of it. Russia okay. is winning this war, mm -hmm. and once mm -hmm. Russia wins this war then we can get into the business of talking about what the future looks like. But this notion that we can continue to arm Ukraine to facilitate a successful defense against Russia is absurd. 350,000 dead Ukrainians point to the absurdity of that. $185 billion of U.S. taxpayer money already poured into Ukraine, and they're faltering in their aren't counter there, aren't, there, aren't the results right now more of a deadlock or some kind of stalemate? No, not at all. Uh, you don't suffer 10 to 1 kill ratio disadvantages and call it a deadlock. Russia's in the business the of destroying. Victory, perhaps, but. No, Russia's in the business of destroying the Pyrrhic, Ukrainian armed I mean. forces. Yeah, Pyrrhic. No, it's not Pyrrhic because in order to be Pyrrhic, Russia would have to lose more than the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are losing 10 dead Ukrainians for every one dead Russian. Mm -hmm. That's not a Pyrrhic victory. That's a dramatic victory. Russia's not about terror. Well, they could see it as the price of sovereignty. Well, they're going to lose their sovereignty. They've already lost 20% of their country, and if they continue this conflict, they may lose more. Uh, this is just a reality. It doesn't mean that I'm promoting this. I'm not. I'm talking uh -huh. about reality. Not the reality against the rights of self-defense, but as far as um, you also have a right to die, yeah. and therefore Ukraine is exercising their right to die right now. 
Sure. And I would encourage America mm -hmm. not to facilitate their deaths. If you care about Ukraine, you should be seeking land for peace or something like that. It's not land for peace. First of all, the territories that Russia has are Russian territories. They're dominated by Russian people who have rejected mm -hmm. the tyranny of the Banderists uh, out of yeah, Kiev. Yeah, of the Ukrainian government. Um, Ukraine, just to remember, just to just to current Ukrainian up, government. I'm not the current sure. Ukrainian government had an opportunity in March to end this conflict in a way that would yes. have them retain. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I do recognize those. Uh, there's always ceasefire feelers put out, and there. No, it was a treaty that was signed. It wasn't a ceasefire uh, feeler. No. It was a negotiated treaty where mm -hmm. Ukraine had signed off on the final document, but Boris Johnson flew in and told Zelensky he can't implement this treaty; that he must continue the conflict. What month was that? A, uh, March of 2022. Of last year, okay, yeah. right after it started, or right before? That was right. Right after it started. Right after, yeah. Right. Um. Okay, so let's say the movie is about your. Is, is it so? Do you, have you shot a lot of um? What what's your process? Uh, where where are you in the documentary making for Waging Peace right now? Well, right you now, shot a bunch. Did you shoot a bunch of video while you were touring? And that's going to be the like the bulk of it. What's uh, what's the outline you have? Well, we shot a bunch of video. It's but it's not just going to be a travel log. It's it's going to be about the importance of disarmament. We're working with people. I, mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't say the names until we actually get them on board. But uh, some some pretty big names. Um, you know, it's 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 going to be about the importance of. We're going to put things into context. Some of what we discussed here today about the INF Treaty, about uh, disarmament, nuclear disarmament. We're going to talk about the threat of nuclear war and try and scare the dog poop out of people about the reality of nuclear war, the importance of disarmament, and then talk about the process. And in doing so, uh, we'll talk about my experiences as a weapons inspector and then to try and take down, the, the again, the, the, the wall of ignorance that exists because of Russophobia um, to e explain to the American people about the reality of Russia, introduce them to the Russian people. And I have a plenty of footage about this that that'll be incorporated in. And the idea is to make a feature late documentary that uh, discusses this process mm. because it is a process. It's a process that I'm encouraging everybody to join with me. That's why it's called waging peace. This is an interactive process. When I want, when I want people to watch this film and I want them to leave saying, I want to be on board. This is what I want to do. I want to wage peace because if I don't wage peace, we're all going to die in a nuclear holocaust. Hmm. Not to mention militarism is uh, pretty bad for the environment and distracts us from tackling social problems. Uh, you're not going to get a debate from me on that. I, uh, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, <laughs> As a former militarist I don't myself. Have, let's see. <laughs> mm, I don't feel like that's particularly... Yeah, and, uh, and, and waging peace also means kind of getting away from... Even if we're in a multipolar world of various nation states, that we're not falling, we're not falling into what's called could be called campism, where it's like we have a camp and the camp is America's camp because we're proud Americans. Um, how's uh, do you have? Um, does your how's your patriotism uh, convert to? Um, does it have it? Is there an internationalist side to your? Um, to your outlook to to these issues, or is it merely a, a matter of self-preservation and fear-type motivations? No, no, I'm uh, I'm somebody believes because you mentioned a few times the motivation, uh, the motive trying to scare people into action. With, well, I, I want to scare you to. You should be afraid of dying. 
uh, especially a premature death brought on by a thermonuclear explosion in your backyard. If that doesn't scare you, literally. But is it? Will. I'm not. I'm not denying it's scary. But is it a great motivator for organizing? It better be because it's real. Hmm. The best organ. The best motivator for organizing is real. Something that's real. Something that's discernible. Something that exists. Something you can target. You can't solve a problem unless you accurately define the problem. And the biggest problem facing humanity today, in terms of what can kill it quicker than anything else, quickerly yeah. is nuclear war it's mm -hmm. real gotcha. so therefore that's our objective is to eliminate the potential of nuclear conflict um that's an international problem i believe that the united states um, i probably you know have a, a a more um red white and blue attitude than than most uh i took an oath to help them defend the constitution and i believe in that oath mm -hmm. but that oath doesn't give me carte blanche to go to war against the world in mm -hmm. fact, I go back to the founding fathers, and I know that's unpopular sometimes because of, you know, the fact that our nation was a slave-owning nation at the beginning. Go but on. I'm a big fan of uh, George Washington saying we we do, we shouldn't be They're going out there, too, and you know. and, uh, and 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 we shouldn't be making having foreign alliances. We shouldn't be chasing international demons. We should be about ourselves. Uh, ourselves mean that we look to making our community the best in the world, and we learn to live peacefully in cooperation with our neighbors, not just neighbors in the United States, but our neighbors around the world. Mm -hmm. One of, the, one of the, the neighbors that we have is Russia, and we have to find out how to peacefully coexist with Russia. This is imperative. Gotcha. Um, do you think that's possible so long as we're um, economically competing with each other? I, I, and that goes for, like, any other large world power. I think if we, I mean, if, if we're... If the economic competition is done in the context of um, vying for military supremacy, then no, because it's not about economic competition. It's about military supremacy. I think once do you we think we can have economic, not domination, but um, do, do you think we can be economically competitive without exerting military uh, power? 100%. We do it here in America all the time. We don't call in the cops every time we get into a contract negotiation with a, uh, with a competitor. Uh, what we do is if the competitor does something better than us, we, we do if somebody a... doesn't want to pay rent. Well, I mean, that's. <laughs> they're, or, they're... or have their land extracted for resources. You're or have bringing... a pipeline put over their land. Anyway, uh, yes. Okay, what, I, what I'm saying is if I want to open up a, uh, a vegetable stand mm -hmm. and I'm selling vegetables and my, my, my competitor does a better job of organizing to it, has lower priced vegetables at higher quality. Mm -hmm. um, my job is not to destroy my neighbor because he's doing it better. Oh, but those are two neighbors. All right, this is the context of a state enforcing those those contracts, correct? So, but anyway, um, you, you've gotten your uh, point out. Um, I don't think war is inevitable. Okay. Um, Cynthia, why don't you contribute? Um, how do you... Um, how have you got involved with Scott, and um, what is next? I met Scott. I, I sent him a friend request on Facebook a few years ago, mm -hmm. and he did a couple of interviews with me when I was doing Blog Talk Radio, and then uh, I switched to uh, YouTube, mm -hmm. and then the war broke out. And I would call Scott and I'd say, Scott, you want to do an uh, uh, interview about this subject or that? And he was always right there. And he said, yes. And, and 
if he helped me build my YouTube channel, I want to help him promote promote his movie. Uh, Scott, what were you doing between um, basically in the 20-teens, um, just so I'm aware? What was I doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote for, well, I mean, I, I went to prison for three and a half years, if you're getting at that. Um, oh, okay. Oh, if I was probation. But, no, no, uh, and no, that was no. the second term. Probation was the uh, was was after prison, but I went to okay. prison. So yeah. I think I, I you know we'll, we'll set it up. I was uh, wrongfully charged, mm-hmm. illegally <laughs> wrongfully convicted. Prison police things, you know. I I don't want to. I'm not going to leave myself into swearing. The only way I can make a joke about it is by swearing. So, um, oh, whatever. The the point is, I mean, that happened. Prior to that, um, I was. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll put it this. I'll put it this way. Every uh, when when I search your name, any explanation uh, that isn't say a um, well the other thing was the LaRouche blog, but um, it, it always put a convicted sex offender in your bio. And then when I look into just just the CBS version coverage of it, it's like it mentions it's like these, these were both police things. Um, so I, I don't I don't need to dig into that. It's too it's, it's personal and I don't care. Um, especially as uh, the sex offender list is a lot of bullshit. Let me interject a thought at this point. Go ahead. When I started talking with Scott, and I saw Scott on TV in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. and he was on Dottie and he was on other cable news network shows, and mm-hmm. he was talking that there was no ma- weapons of mass men. destruction. And he was, I would say, the only person... That spoke out at that time. There um, were few. Right. But very few. Yeah. So I thought. Playing okay. the seed of doubt in my teenage brain. And I thought, okay, now there's another thing that's facing us. So if Scott was right about this and he had the gumption to talk about it, mm-hmm. he, I'm 100% behind him. All right, cool. Um, but to answer your question, what I've done is uh, once I was released from prison, I rebuilt mm-hmm. my life. Um, first of all, I've, I've, I'd never run away from it. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it mm-hmm. because I'm an innocent man. And yeah, I will right. sit here and talk about it all day long. But I'm, I'm armed oh, with no, the facts. I'm, I'm not, I know you don't I'm want to talk about it. I'm not on the attack here. But I'm, I'm, I, what I tell people is uh, if you want to talk about it, we'll talk. But you got to do your research first because sure. I'm not going to do it for you. Uh, because what I'm focused on is getting back to what I was doing. Oh, of course. I, I, side I didn't bring it up. I wouldn't bring it up as a, as a form of. Um, but look, I've been, you brought up the prison time. I didn't even know. Well, I mean, you so. asked about the, the, the 2000, you know, in the teens. Sure. That's true. <laughs> well, I mean, my God, from. Uh... No, no, I just, I just want context. For, <laughs> I'm, I'm literally speaking out of ignorance of what. Um, I just don't want, the, I, I don't want people war, to, to pretend that I'm. Before the war. And I, I guess my, 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 my question I'm leading to is just. Um, as uh, in the last few years, uh, you've uh, been uh, – have you felt you've been a, a more and more of a high-demand guest because of your previous uh, uh, experience being uh, – you know, a pundit is one of your titles as well. I can no, answer no, but, that. But I can pundit. answer that. Um, Nonetheless. He's the darling on the internet. When I do a show with, with Scott, I get thousands of views my best show with Scott was 104,000 views. So I think that's pretty good when I tell people. Sounds like a self-interested motive, Cynthia. Uh, well. <laughs> get some good avenue from that, or are you um, not uh, on the bo- on the board with that? 
Oh, I, I get, I get a little revenue from it, but, but the fact is, I've got nearly ten thousand subscribers, which is good. Mm-hmm. I've got over a million views, which is better. And you know, worldwide, people love Scott. Mm-hmm. I get very few comments, derogatory comments about him. There's Most of them are po- positive. Most of them respect him. Most of them say, thank you for bringing Scott on. And uh, we, we, we really admire a truth teller. Okay, so he's known worldwide. Sure. In the Capital District, not so much. And I figured that by doing the fundraiser at Glenn Peter Jewelers, having him favorite come, spot of yours, having him come on this show, do making up the flyers, passing them on, I want people to recognize what an important person he is in the Capital District. Well, certainly, I uh, do not not um, not just uh, distracting, but it is not a controversy. Uh, is not controversial that uh, disarmament issue uh, as an issue is important. There we go. Getting that sentence out. So let's go through, and we still have quite a few. Let's go through the event. Um, Waging Peace kickstarted. Are you going to have a, a Kickstarter-like platform available as well to donate? I have no idea what a Kickstarter platform is. A crowd a crowdfunding uh, mechanism. Well, we have, uh, we, I mean, we've already set up a... Um, a uh, online uh, country wagingpeace.fund where go. people can uh, okay. where people are and and we're actively wait wait so wagingpeace.fund fund is the domain name correct okay and uh those and, are those are a lot cheaper than the comms and the words i can tell you okay I, I, again somebody's doing this for me so i'm uh okay I, no I, I rely on that but no we, I'm, I'm talking to the listeners you know that my website is dot news for a okay. reason because um, it's cheaper than dot com yeah literally like you know five bucks versus so we we're, we've been actively raising uh, funding. That's how we're uh, underwriting the uh, production of the trailer right now. Mm-hmm. I had hoped that we could uh, get the trailer done in time for for it to be. And the trailer uh, would be, then be used for further uh, for further fundraising. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but un- not unfortunately. But my my daughter's getting married on August twelfth, and uh, yeah, might as well that, talk to her. That is literally um, eating into a lot of my time in terms of. Uh, what 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 I can uh, dedicate to? Uh, Why don't you let program. the groom's family handle the planning then? Because that's traditionally not what's right. Done. <laughs> it's the it's the father mm-hmm. and the mother of the bride that uh, that True. do this. So we are traditionalists in that sense. Mm-hmm. But uh, there will be things. I'll have copies of my books. Um, mm-hmm. the Disarm of the time. How many three. books have you um, written? Ten. Can you only... list uh, at least uh, and give us a summary of each? Well, I can. Uh, the first book I wrote was called Endgame. Uh, mm-hmm. It dealt with uh, solving the Iraqi problem. Uh, it was written right Oh, yeah, and give the year that you wrote it. 19, published uh, it. 1999 was when it was published, early 1999. It was okay. written in the aftermath of my resignation from uh, the United Nations inspection team in Iraq, where I was the chief weapons inspector. And what was the main days. motivation for uh, your resignment? Uh, my main motivation for resigning is that the United States government was doing things that weren't uh, authorized under the Security Council mandate for disarmament. They were seeking regime change. Before using, 2001. Correct. Uh, they were right. using my inspection team mm-hmm. as a mechanism to spy on Saddam and to undermine the Iraqis instead of doing what we're supposed to be doing, yes. which is... Um, you weren't there for, uh, for espionage. 
I, I look, I tell other people straight up, um, you know, I'm not a naive little punk kid. Mm -hmm. um, if they had told me in 1991 when I started the job that your job is to go in there and commit espionage, I'd have done it. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. All right, job. so continue on to the next. But they told me my job was disarmament. And mm -hmm. once you tell me what my job is, I do my job. All so right. I resigned after seven years. Oh, of no, no. To do my job. Man, of, man of honor. What's and the next one? Well, the next one after that was War on Iraq. It was a short book. It was based upon an interview, a long interview, a lengthy interview with William Rivers Pitt. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we wrote uh, this book, and it was published in um, the summer of 2001 uh, as, an, as a mechanism of empowering people about the truth about. Wait, name that title again. War on Iraq. War on Iraq. Okay. Before 9-11. Yeah. Wonderful. Yep. Uh, well, 9-11 is what bankrupted the poor publishing house because uh, my book was the only one that succeeded that year. The other books did but uh -huh. when all the thing came in. So I sold uh, over 275,000 copies of that book and made no money. <laughs> mm. But uh, such is the writer's life. The, uh, the next book after that was Frontier Justice. Uh, it was um, a a book about um, George W. Bush and um, and the, the the lies he told to get us to war. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what year was that? You published that in 02 that was or published in 03 yeah. after, right. after the invasion. Uh, okay. The, the next book after that was Iraq Confidential. That was sort of a um, history slash memoir of my time as a weapons inspector okay. uh, in Iraq where I talk about not only what I and other inspectors did to disarm Iraq. How many years were you doing that? Um, your resignation was 96, you said. 98. Right? 98. When did you start? 91. Gotcha. Um, after Desert Storm. Which I fought in. So gotcha. I, I had the opportunity to hunt Iraqi Scud missiles during Desert Storm, and then I hunted Iraqi Scud missiles as a weapons inspector. After. Afterwards. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, okay. The book after that was uh, would be Target Iran, and this is where I addressed the issue of Iran's nuclear program mm -hmm. and how it was being misconstrued uh, by the West or being a false. Iran was being falsely accused of having a nuclear weapons program. There were mm -hmm. a lot of parallels between what yeah. had been done in Iraq and what was doing with with Iran. So yeah. I did that. The book after that was uh, any peace activist was shouting that you know was. Um, the Art of War for the Anti-War Movement. Um, it was basically uh, an adaptation of Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Sure. But the idea, I had, at that time I had been doing, um, I was heavily involved with the anti-war movement. Um, mm -hmm. I was traveling all around the world and, um, and in the United States trying to get people to stand up to this illegal war of aggression that had taken place in Iraq. And um, so, what, so what year were you writing this one? Uh, that book came out in 2006 or seven. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, just trying to build a timeline. No, no, no problem. But the, um, the, you know, I, I was just, I'll just be honest. I was horribly frustrated with the anti-war movement mm -hmm. because of their inability to sustain anything. They were all flash, no substance. Uh, they couldn't sustain, they couldn't sustain a movement. It was falling apart. And so this was a, Post-leftist is, is one uh, particular term to, to use. What, what is it? Post-left, which basically designates that, okay, so like you see left and right politics mm -hmm. as like, okay, there's a left that's for egalitarian slash, you know, uh, people-based power and right, which is for, you know, elitist slash, um, you know, institutional power. And um, in the 60s, you have all the critics of top-down socialism and top-down, you know, 
and even even you know when you have the success of union movements they become union bureaucrats so there's a kind of a you know the 60s countercultural movements anti-bureaucracy anti-hierarchy so you get a post leftism and so it's like well not left anymore because left is still tied to the state and how you, you know, interact with it uh, in bureaucracies. So we don't want to do that. So you get end up getting all these social movements that are informed by this thinking that uh, you don't actually want to build real, not real organizations, but organizations that have discipline and that have leadership and um, or membership, let's say. And so you get these decentralized organizations and movements that where you get a structure of a tyranny of the structurelessness is sometimes it's called. And there's a bunch of other dialogues, of course, and engage with that. I'm really simplifying it. But um, when it comes to the, my lifetime and the left movements, there's a, there's always this current of post leftism involved um, and voices that I've been gravitate. I've gravitated towards since occupy are those that say member based parties, dues based organizations, in Occupy, I was kind of dismissive because it's like, well, I don't have 20 bucks to put in every month. I am a poor student. Um, but at the same time, uh, if, if, if you want, now I'm in my 30s, I can pay dues to multiple organizations, and that's what I'm doing. Even those that are ideologically you know, not the same, but I don't care, um, they're doing work. So, so yeah, sorry, uh, how many books uh, were you in? Uh, I think we're we're up to six. The, okay. Uh, I think we're we're up to six. The, okay. The seventh is um, dangerous ground. It was a history of America's nuclear uh, arms. Uh, okay, program. so more general history. Of, Basically, uh, starting from the beginning and yes. going to uh, at this at, when the book was written was Obama. Mm -hmm. um, the book after that. Um, we are out of time. We're out of time. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> Make a, a last one uh, one minute to uh, wrap things up. Look, America's uh, in a very dangerous uh, situation today. We uh, we live in a world where the threat of nuclear annihilation is real, uh, and yet we're not pursuing arms control. And one of the reasons why we're not pursuing arms control is because we fear Russia. We don't understand Russia. Russophobia is the first problem that has to be addressed, and that's what I'm trying to do with my uh, my movie, Waging Peace. Cool. Thank you for coming in. Okay, so that's this week's show. Please contact me to leave feedback, suggest topics, or join me on the program. I want to wish all well and encourage all listening to devote some time every week to a collective or community project as we discover what is actually left in Albany. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you.